In a dark moment of our shared history, the good news of Jesus shone like a bright candle in a dark cave of human misery. Then as now, people were suffering. Evil was rampant. Hope was fading fast. But Jesus came to dispel the darkness. As he did, villains and heroes were exposed. Who were these people? Why did they respond the way they did? Is it possible for a villain to become a hero of faith? Let's think on these things today as we listen and learn from the book called the Bible and from the Word of God, who is Jesus. Greetings, Radio Congregation. This is Pastor Chuck McGathy from First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. Today I am live at the radio studio of WMYN-WLOE Rockingham County Radio. I am broadcasting a live worship service for the entire community. Now I'd like you to know this is a surprise for me. It was not on my bucket list to become a radio preacher. I might not sound like some of the radio or television evangelists with which you are familiar. That is because I am a pastor. I have been called to be a spiritual shepherd to a real live congregation. In Madison, I have been doing that for 14 years. But as you all know, our world has changed lately. No one likes it much. We are all hurting. COVID-19 cases have increased in Rockingham County 25% since last week. Most of the people I know really want to gather in their houses of worship and be with their friends. The facts, though, indicate that we must all still take deliberate measures to slow the spread of this deadly disease. So we encourage one another to protect themselves and others by taking the recommended safety measures seriously. Together, we will get to a new normal within which we can all live. Right now, however, we have an opportunity to experience God in a way that can prove to be helpful. I hope that this experience of worship will be that for you. So thank you for tuning in. Let this be a chance for spiritual growth and increasing love and newfound unity among brothers and sisters of Christ following faith. Please share the hope that a strong and intelligent faith in Jesus can offer. My prayer is that this broadcast worship will develop a strong and resilient Christ community. I need your help, though. Call up a friend. Invite them to listen live or later to the podcast. And as always, thank you for giving this hour as an offering of love to God. Let him speak to you as you ponder the meaning of genuine Christ-following faith. We also want you to know we love you and want to be a partner in your spiritual journey as you go through these days of social distancing. In order to help you do that, I invite you to drop by our church located at 110 South Franklin Street in Madison. Our church office store is directly across from the Dollar General store. On Monday through Thursday mornings, 9 to 12, we have a blue bin 
where you can drop off food donations to help those in crisis. Any donations you make are gratefully received and are delivered to the Hands of God Food Pantry. When you stop by, please take a complimentary copy of Nurturing Faith magazine. If you don't know about Nurturing Faith, let me fill you in. This magazine is one of the most thoughtful, best-written, and intellectually stimulating religious magazines available today. Each issue covers current concerns, developments in the Christian world, historical profiles, weekly Bible study, and more. In your copy of Nurturing Faith, you will find an access code to further enhance your study of the Bible through an online teacher. Dr. Tony Cartledge is a professor, pastor, and author who provides deep insight for Christian living without dumbing down the richness of the biblical text for honest learners. You can let this period of isolation be an enriching experience by getting your free copy of Nurturing Faith this week. Please check out our church website, too. Go to www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. We would love for you to email us, get helpful resources, ask questions, make an online donation, or listen to a podcast of this worship program. If you like, give us a call or leave a detailed message at 336-548-6112. I will repeat this at the end of the broadcast. Now let's begin our worship. Our call to worship is the 116th Psalm. The Lord hearkens to our call, listening to our pleas and hearing our prayers. We will praise God who gives rest to our souls. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in the presence of all God's people, we acknowledge our faith. We will call on the Lord as long as we live. We are your servants, O God. You have loosed our bonds. We will offer sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. How shall we repay the Lord for all we have been given? We will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Let us pray. As you walk with us, as we journey together, Lord, your word fills our hearts. As you speak with us, as your love is revealed, Lord, your fire burns in our hearts. As we proclaim what we have seen and heard, may all people be drawn to you, the risen Lord. Amen. The scripture passage I am bringing before you today is found in Acts chapter 2. Peter said to them, Repent! And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. The advancements in our world brought about by modern scientific discovery have been of great benefit to humankind. I must admit that I am rather baffled whenever I encounter a person who seems to have adopted a rather suspicious attitude toward learning and views the knowledge acquired by scientific breakthroughs as somehow threatening. As I have often said, I will say again, there 
ought not be an artificial conflict constructed wherein one may choose to believe in science or one may choose the Christian religion. Science is God's gift to humanity and should be supported and encouraged by our faith. There are lots of reasons why I say this, but one of these is rather directly beneficial in helping us understand better the very founding of the faith we claim. We, for existence, did not know exactly when it was that Jesus was crucified. For most of my life, and certainly throughout my formal theological education, no one could say with any degree of certainty the exact year when Jesus died. Was he crucified in 30, or was it 31, 32, or 33 AD? Now, I know I have heard each of those dates speculated on for years. The best any religious scholar could do was posit a reasonable guess. But did you know that in 2012, science helped us out by confirming not only the year, but the exact day Jesus was crucified? This is how they did that. From Live Science, an article written by Jennifer Viegas in 2012. The latest investigation reported in the journal International Geology Review focused on earthquake activity at the Dead Sea, located 13 miles from Jerusalem. The Gospel of Matthew 27 mentions that an earthquake coincided with the crucifixion. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split and the tombs broke open. To analyze earthquake activity in the region, geologist Jefferson Williams of supersonic geophysical and colleagues Marcus Schwab and Achim Brauer of German Research Center for Geosciences studied three cores from the beach of the Engedi Spa adjacent to the Dead Sea. <laughs> what these scientists did was to analyze data using modern scientific methods. And what they determined was that specific seismic records did, in fact, point strongly to 33 AD, or CE, if you so prefer, as the exact year that Jesus was crucified just outside of the Judean capital city of Jerusalem. Today, thanks to science, we are able to determine something that the Bible alone does not make specifically clear. Jesus was crucified on April 3rd, in the year 33. But today, today it means I can confidently use that date as part of my title for this third Sunday of Easter message. My title is The Villains and the Heroes of 33 AD. What is a villain? What is a hero? Well, before I get into the heart of my teaching today, it is necessary to do a little bit of defining of terms. One dictionary defines a villain. A villain is a bad person, real or made up, in books, movies, current events, or history. The villain is the character who does mean evil things on purpose. Today, a villain is a wicked person, whether in fact or fiction. Well, well let's don't stop there. How does another source describe what a villain is? Merriam-Webster offers three ways to describe a villain. First, a character in a story or play who opposes the hero. Second, a deliberate scoundrel or criminal. Third, one blamed for a particular evil or difficulty. 
And the Cambridge Dictionary puts it plainly describing a villain as a bad person who harms other people or breaks the law or a cruel or evil character. Now, I just spent a moment or two telling you something you already know. We all have a pretty good idea what a villain is, don't we? We know some of the villains of history. People like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong were well-known villains of my early years. But there are many, many more. Some are living today. People who are deliberate in their self-centered cruelty, people who seemingly delight in hurting others, sadly still exist among us. Yet this villainy thing is not confined to our day, but has been with us as far back as the day when Cain slew Abel. And it was clearly present in the spring of 33 AD in a place known as Roman Palestinia, a place that the Jews knew as Judea. There in the stories conveyed by the gospel writers, we can identify several who would fit the description of villain. Even though they were different characters and differently motivated, there is still something so evil about them that they rightly deserve the title of villain. They play an important part in understanding the unfolding story that is the founding of the movement originally called the Way of Following Jesus. Before I mention these, I want to first think a bit about what a hero is. We use that term freely. It is a term I hear every day, especially since there are so many today who willingly risk their lives to help others. Be they health care workers, long-haul truckers, police and firefighters, they and others like them are all heroes in my book. But in most stories, heroes are those who set against villains. They are the protagonist who oppose the antagonist. The biblical story of the events leading up to and following the crucifixion of Jesus highlight the heroes too. Again, these are people unique in character, but also possess something in their life stories that sets them apart. Today, let's consider eight biblical characters, four villains and four heroes, who help us understand the gospel story. Let's also bear in mind that their stories also help us understand who we are today. Each of these characters is complex. All of them are motivated by similar wants and needs we share in common. And I think understanding them better might help us see how the good news of the gospel is still playing out on the contemporary stage. Let's consider the villains first. We'll start with villain number one, Herod Antipas. Herod grew up in an opulent but difficult family. His father, referred to as Herod the Great, was known for two things in our Bible. First, he was a great builder. He restored the temple to fabulous grandeur. Secondly, he was a paranoid maniac. He was the same Herod who ordered the death of the baby boys in Bethlehem because he feared a rival. About Herod the Great, the Roman Emperor Augustine commented, It is better to be Herod's pig than his son. He said that about Herod because he had, in fact, executed three of his own sons. Into that privileged and yet horrific household, Antipas was born. Now that is not a way to excuse the behavior of Herod, but it does help us understand him. By the time Jesus begins his ministry, Herod Antipas is fully in power. I say fully in power, but the truth was he was only in power because the Romans supported him. 
He was not loved by most of the people. He was seen as a lackey of the Roman emperor and also seen as an immoral man. He may have desired the title king of the Jews, but he was a puppet and an outsider. Nevertheless, Herod Antipas still held power. He had executed a popular Jewish prophet, a man called John the Baptizer. Jesus referred to him as a fox because of his sly and cruel nature. Antipas is the first villain I mentioned because it was to him that Jesus was sent for judgment. It was the high priest who had sent Jesus to Pilate, and then Pilate sent Jesus to Herod Antipas. Each of these are villains of the story. Pilate sent Jesus to Herod as a political maneuver. By so doing, he managed to secure a self-serving alliance with the Jewish figurehead who was the ruler of the region Jesus was from. By doing this, Herod is acknowledged and also flattered. You see, like most narcissistic people, flattery was everything to Antipas. As it is recorded in the Bible, Herod and Pilate became friends that day. Herod surely needed a friend. This self-interested, spoiled, and irresponsible caricature of a king did not have the respect of the common people. He had a cruel streak that he also encouraged in his lackeys. Herod and his soldiers made fun of Jesus. Herod demanded he perform a miracle for him, and then finally, like a spoiled child who tries a, tires of abusing a stray dog, he sent Jesus back to the Roman procurator. Herod demonstrated his character that day. Insecure, self-absorbed, narcissistic. These are character traits that are on display as this villain acts out his role. What started the trials of Jesus rolling, though, had happened before Jesus was sent to Pilate or Herod. We learn about this villain named Caiaphas and his motivation from John's gospel account. Jesus was at the peak of his popularity, but it was threatening to the religious leaders who feared losing their power over the people and their economic interest in the temple system. Listen to how John describes this villainous moment. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Caiaphas was motivated by greed and power. When he saw that the economy that was based on exchanging temple currency was threatened by Jesus, he and these with him determined that this Jew had to die so that the system could be preserved. In other words, the high priest chose to let one man die so the economy might be unimpeded. Biblically speaking, that makes Caiaphas and his confederates villains in this story. Pontius Pilate was also 
a villain, though he is unique in his motivation. He is not a playboy puppet king like Herod. Neither is he a greedy backroom manipulator like Caiaphas. No, Pilate is just ambitious. He wants to do a good enough job to get promoted out of the land of the Jews and get a great job in Rome. The only way that is going to happen is that he succeeds in keeping a lid on the simmering cauldron of Jewish discontent. It is clear about Pilate that he did, in fact, know right from wrong. He knew that Jesus was no threat to Rome, nor had he violated any Roman law. Yet in the end, he was perfectly willing to sacrifice him so that he might keep the peace and achieve his career goals. Pilate is the example for anyone who would willingly step over someone to make it to the top, and that makes him to a villain. The villains are, so far, a politician, a religious leader, and the head of law enforcement. Yet, there is another, I must mention, a false friend. His name was Judas Iscariot. His motivations were the most complex and most difficult to describe. No doubt Judas liked money. He had been involved in keeping the money for the disciples, but it was later discovered that he had been skimming some off the top. He also was the disciple who sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, a considerable sum in those days. Nevertheless, I do not think greed fully explains his actions. Something else motivates his villainous behavior. Judas, I suspect, was in some way connected to or at least influenced by the zealots. Zealots were terrorists who operated through cells who regularly ambushed Roman soldiers to get the Romans to respond against the general populace and thus prompt a Jewish uprising. They wanted their country back, and the zealots were willing to sacrifice Jewish lives to achieve their end. Do you see how this villainy is so insidious? To be a villain is easy. All one has to do to become a villain is to give in to the evil crouching at the door. We all know what that is. It is perhaps different for all of us, but everyone knows the lure of evil that calls from a hundred different combinations. When goodness comes in, just like Jesus arriving in Jerusalem, light is shunned in the darkness and the things that have been hidden are revealed. That is when we can best see so clearly the evil deeds prompted by evil motivations. But it is also an opportunity for faith to shine. In our next segment, we will consider some of the heroes who emerged in the spring of 33. Right now, I'd like to share our wonderful choir with you, singing The Holy Heart, words and music by Ann Barber and Marcia Skidmore, arranged by Mary McDonald. The Holy Heart. Heart.
Before we move into the next portion of today's message, I want to pause to give you a few updates from our faith community. Even though we are all slowed down a bit, some important things are happening. Please let me know if there is some news you want me to share. I want to start by sharing with you a nice note we received from Joe and Omi Dillon. They wrote, Thanks to everyone for being so wonderful to us. Food, cards, and more important, all the prayers each and every day. We are so grateful for our church family. With your continued prayers, we'll be back in church as soon as possible. We're under doctor's orders right now and not allowed to do a lot. The walls are closing in. Yet God gave us beautiful flowers to look at. That helps, and we are grateful. Love to all, Joe and Omi. I have some congratulations to share this morning. We have some children and grandchildren who have met some impressive goals. Ron and Mona Price's granddaughters are graduating. Samantha Bryce Cole is graduating on May 15th from Rockingham Early College High School. Samantha will be attending Barton College in the fall. And her older sister, Alexandra Cole, is soon to graduate from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, with a Bachelor of Arts in Teaching. Sylvia Perkins is proud of her granddaughter, Mackenzie Marshall Payne, who is graduating from McMichael High School. Her parents, Rob and Stephanie Payne, are pretty proud, too. Mackenzie told me she's interested in photography and hopes to pursue that further. Lieutenant Junior Grade Michael McGathy graduates this week from Ships Engineer School in Newport, Rhode Island. He will be returning to Norfolk where he will enter another school before he reports aboard the USS Mesa Verde. My Marine, Kevin Smith, has completed electrical school at 29 Palms, California. He is shipping out for assignment in Hawaii, but will be quarantined as a precaution for 14 days before he's able to report aboard Marine Corps Air Station Kaneohe. If you have a grad you want to brag on, let me know. We all need the good news. I also want to share with you that even though I won't be able to share specifics, that many folks have told me that God is speaking to their hearts in an unusually powerful way through this COVID-19 pandemic. Some have renewed their relationship with God. Others have rededicated their lives to supporting and loving His church. And still others have been reaching out to family and friends, restoring and nurturing vital relationships. Perhaps you have a story to tell. Now let's continue with the Bible teaching today. The story of Easter has been told in hundreds of ways, I suppose, but today I'm doing something new, at least something new for me. This day I am considering the story through the lens of the bad guys and the good guys of the story. Both villains and heroes are evident in the tumultuous events in the spring of 33 A.D., through their experiences, as we delve into their character and decisions, we can, I believe, learn about who we are and what we can do. I say can do because I believe we all have a choice. Through the example of these lives, we can choose to do the good or the bad, the right or the wrong. We can join the way of following Jesus or the way of personal destruction. So with that in mind, let's take a look now at some of those whose actions we can admire— those we can describe as heroic. The first believers in Jesus' resurrection would have been surprise heroes. The reason is the first heroes in the Christian story were not men, but women. 
Women play an important role in the resurrection story, and their inclusion in the Gospels offers dramatic evidence that the story they tell is accurate and honest. Let me explain. First century Jewish culture was thoroughly male-dominated. Women were kept in the background. They were withheld from the inner courts of the temple, and when they attended their local synagogues, they stood behind the men in the rear. Women did not come to the front and offer midrash or teach from the Torah. In fact, women were not formally taught the Torah. That was reserved for men alone. Jewish men would recite a brief passage at the beginning of the daily morning prayers that went like this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. Now, this is important to keep in mind because the first heroes of the Easter story were women, and specifically a woman named Mary Magdalene. She seems to have been the most prominent of several women who were the first of Jesus' followers to discover an empty tomb. They had gone to the tomb to try and finish the ritual anointing of Jesus' body for burial. That in and of itself was a loving and courageous act. They knew that once they arrived at the tomb, they would have to encounter a Roman guard and somehow persuade them to reopen the sealed tomb. But when they arrived, to their astonishment, they discovered that the guard was gone, the seal was broken, and the stone looked like it had been hurled aside. Now this is a revealing moment recorded by Luke. He writes, Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other woman with him who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. What I want you to notice here is validated by Luke. Women were the first to learn of the empty tomb, and that fact is noteworthy. Women were not taken that seriously in the culture of that day. Their report was doubted probably because of the improbability of it, but no doubt also because the first reports of the empty tomb were delivered by women. But here is where the way of following Jesus is going to be heroic. Women are given equality. Women are the first to learn of the resurrection, and it was a woman, Mary of Magdalena, who went back to the tomb and then uttered the first Christian sermon. John records it in his gospel, this dramatic moment and how it happened. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Then she had said this. She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I think... This verse alone 
ought to settle the debate about whether should, women should be allowed to preach. Mary was entrusted to preach the good news of His resurrection to the men who followed Jesus. Now, had the resurrection story been merely contrived by the men who followed Jesus in order to start their own branch of Judaism, they would never have done it this way. It would not have been a woman announcing the first Christian message. Yet, there it is. And I think it not only an heroic thing done by the women, but heroic of our faith that acknowledges women even in a culture that felt they were by virtue of their sex inferior. The elevation of women as equal partners in the faith experience is a foundational building block for our religion. Now let us consider another hero. Someone who stood in contrast to the crowd to do the right thing. The person I'd like to tell you about next was a follower of Jesus named Philip. There was a disciple of Jesus named Philip, but this Philip is known as Philip the Evangelist, and that is an important title. We read about something he did, something heroic in contrast to the existing order. Luke tells the story in the 8th chapter of Acts. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candrake, which means Queen of Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip to go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. He was like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way, rejoicing. Clearly, Philip is an example of true, and as I hope to demonstrate, heroic evangelism. Evangelism, properly understood as a positive word, it literally means the telling of good news. In the context of Christianity, it is the establishment of a new covenant, a renewed promise that God loves and cares for all people. This passage demonstrates this in a way that is heroic in that it challenges the existing status quo to show the way God truly feels about human beings. The key to the heroic action is found in the question posed by the Ethiopian eunuch who asks, what can stand in the way of me being baptized? The first name of the Christian religion was not the word Christian. The word Christian 
a word that quite literally means Christ within an individual, was not popularized until about a decade after the resurrection. The initial way the people of Christ described themselves was the way of following Jesus, or more briefly put, the way. As the newfound way of following Jesus was being established, the question naturally arose, how can we determine who is in the way and who should be excluded? Any honest reading of the four Gospels would lead to the inevitable conclusion that Jesus consistently taught that there was much more room in God's kingdom than most people thought. In fact, because Jesus' message was so inclusive, it got him into trouble. He included the excluded, women, children, hated Samaritans, Gentiles, even Roman soldiers, and other categories of people who were either excluded or extremely limited in their participation in religious practice. One group of people that were excluded from temple rites were those who could not function in sexual ways that were considered normal. According to the law, those unable to have heterosexual sex broadly referred to as eunuchs were only able to observe the faith from a safe distance. They were not considered full members because of who they were. They could be interested, but they could not be included. Jesus, however, taught that these should likewise be included in the kingdom of God. That is why what Jesus taught in Matthew 19 is so amazing. Listen to his teaching. But he said to them, Not everyone can accept this saying, but those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born as such from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by people. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now, it is important to know that Jesus taught this very early in the life of the church, initially called the way of following Jesus, an important decision had to be made. The moment is recorded when Philip decides to baptize into Christ a man who was of a foreign nation, a man who was most likely of darker skin pigmentation, and a man who was a eunuch. This, I think, was in line with the heart of the teaching of Jesus. But it was also something else, too. This was heroic evangelism. This is what Jesus wanted of his disciples, and it is what Philip does. He included the excluded. Jesus came to seek and to save all people. Philip got that, and Philip acted on that, too. That makes Philip a hero of the faith. The next hero I will mention was a deacon of the early Jerusalem church. He was heroic. Stephen was the first person we know who died defending his conviction of the truth. We read about the circumstances of his death by stoning in the seventh chapter of Acts. This act of courage fomented the rage of those to whom Stephen told the truth. Telling the truth will often make you a hero. Stephen was a truth teller. Even when the truth made some uncomfortable, he had the deep-seated conviction that he needed to speak bravely and honestly. Stephen became a deacon when it became known that there had been preferential treatment in the body of Christ, the church in Jerusalem. 
Some widows who depended upon the care of the congregation were being neglected, it seems, because they had been converts to Judaism instead of born Jewish. Now, in the fledgling Christian faith, there had been a distinction drawn between the Hebrew Christians and the Hellenistic or culturally Greek believers. In response to that, the church selected deacons to help correct an injustice among them. Stephen was selected, and as it also happens, he was himself a Hellenistic Christian. Stephen was also a gifted speaker and as such was given the task to speak to others about the faith. It was in the process of doing this that he managed to infuriate the very same people who clamored for Jesus' death. The issue that brought their anger was his views on the temple. Remember that when Jesus upset the tables of the money changers in the temple, that he challenged the very economic system whereupon the religious authorities were getting rich? Stephen irritates that same nerve. Melissa Petrozelio contributes this to explain. He was summoned before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Rabbinic Court in Jerusalem, and charged with speaking against this holy place in the law. Stephen was critical of the temple in Jerusalem and its sacrificial enterprise. He revered the law of Moses, but considered the temple practices an illegitimate part of it. For Stephen, Moses was both ruler and deliverer. He had delivered living oracles, the true law, and he had promised that God would raise up another prophet, Jesus, as he had raised up Moses. Stephen saw Jesus as the restorer of Mosaic religion. In his discourse, he prefers Moses over Aaron, the tabernacle over the temple, and David, who was persuaded not to build a temple, over Solomon, who did. For Stephen, the building of the temple was a bit of idolatry, comparable to Aaron's golden calf by saying, The Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. Stephen was willing to speak the truth to power. For his efforts, he was killed by an enraged religious mob. He also sets a powerful example of heroic, truth-speaking faith. He does not want to upset anyone but he does want them to understand that God is not so easily contained in a building or a system of religion. For that, he died a hero and an example for all of us. Heroes tell the truth. The story of resurrected faith, I've tried to show, can be understood through the lives of people. We can observe both villains and heroes in the biblical narrative of the newfound faith in following Jesus. We see the worst. We see human beings who have sold their souls out for power, unadulterated greed, self-congratulating narcissism, and political ambition. Sadly, we know all these corruptions of the human spirit. All of these are still highly active in our world today. There is, though, another side of the story. We also learn in the Bible that there were some people who rose up and became heroic in living out noble convictions. They can and should inspire us. The early church, by embracing these same convictions, should also serve to inspire modern heroic faith. That church elevated the place of women. The first resurrection announcement was through the same sex that had been relegated to the back of the theological line. For some reason, God chose them, and the church noticed. Women were to become both preachers and deacons in the early church. 
Yeah, that was countercultural then, but heroes are often willing to swim upstream. The church did not stop there, though. It also found itself a welcome station for strangers. It opened the door to a dark-skinned, foreign-born, sexually misplaced eunuch. That was heroic faith. Oh, and by the way, because of that faith that took a chance, the gospel made its way to Ethiopia. Telling the truth is sometimes heroic. When people around you do not want to hear the truth, truth spoken in love and mercy can make life rather uncomfortable. For Stephen, it led to his death. He would not be the first Christian to suffer for telling the truth. There would be many more. There are some of Christ's followers today who understand that truth matters. We tell the truth and refuse to participate in lies. How do you think you are doing? Are you a hero or a villain? Maybe it isn't always clear. Maybe you wonder, can a person who is acting more like a villain become a hero? If you are wondering that, I've got some great news for you. This resurrection faith, we know that Jesus rose, but we believe that he rose for us. In him, we find our personal resurrections. And that leads me to my final story. This is the story of one who moved from villain to hero because of the resurrection. This is the story of Peter. Let me begin the story just before the moment Jesus is betrayed. As the followers are gathered for the Passover dinner, Jesus tells them he will be betrayed and deserted. Peter loudly protests that he will never, never forsake Jesus. He even secretly buys a sword to fight to the death to protect his master. Jesus, though, tells him, before the morning rooster crows two times, you'll deny me three times. Peter cannot believe his ears and refuses to believe he could ever be so disloyal to the man who had changed his life. Peter, however, discovers to his intense shame that when the moment came, when directly asked if he knew Jesus, that he had no courage. He became so frightened that he swore with a vile oath that he had never even met Jesus. At that exact moment, the temple police were escorting Jesus from a religious trial. And at that moment, Peter realized that his Lord had heard every word of his denial. Then the Bible records that Peter ran away and wept bitterly. Now let me ask you, into which category, hero or villain, did Peter assign himself at that point in his life? Yet unlike Judas, who in his remorse and regret committed suicide, Peter goes into a dark place of grief and depression. His sorrow and his loss of self-respect is unimaginable unimaginable, that is, unless you have ever felt such shame yourself. Perhaps you know what it is to look in the mirror with such contempt at what you see. That is what I believe happened to Peter. What Peter needed was a new start, a renewal, a resurrection. A resurrection was just what he got. Now, Peter was certainly thrilled when he learned that Jesus was raised. He was thrilled, yet there was still that moment when his character revealed itself and he abandoned his best friend. Now he was back, but could things be put back? Who could say? Only one person, Jesus. 
Only the Lord could give Peter another chance. Only Jesus could raise his friend from shame to service. They were fishing. Peter, along with his friends, had to eat, so they returned to the boat to try and meet their physical needs. Then they met Jesus. He was waiting for them on the shore. Just try to, for a moment, to feel the feelings of Peter as he sees his friend and really speaks to him for the first time. John recorded the moment for us. After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, master, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Then he asked him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, master, you know I love you. Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was upset that he asked for the third time, do you love me? So he answered, Master, you know everything there is to know. You've got to know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I'm telling you the very truth now. When you were young, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wished. But when you get old, you'll have to stretch out your hands while someone else dresses you and takes you where you don't want to go. He said this to hint at the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he commanded, follow me. There were three affirmations as Jesus gives his friend a chance to reverse three denials. Jesus asked Peter to care for others, to do as he had done, to lay down his life for his friends. And this Peter does. And for this he will not die a villain but a hero. Peter has become a co-participant in Jesus' resurrection. Do you need a resurrection today? Is there someone with whom you need to share your love? Do you need to offer? Do you need to receive forgiveness? Do you need to give? Do you need to serve? Do you need to come to the truth and with honesty and faith and then live in the hope that only the resurrection can provide? You can do that right now. Pray along with me. Jesus, I admit that I have failed to live up to what I know you want me to be, what I want me to be. For my past, I am so sorry. I cannot undo it. Yet I now realize you are reaching out your hand to me. You are in the business of turning villains into heroes. I want to be a hero for the gospel. Change my heart. Make me a servant. I will follow you. Amen. This has been Dr. Chuck McGathy, pastor of First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. I hope this worship today was meaningful for you. Please let us know. Our website is www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org or call and leave a detailed message including how we can contact you at 336-548-6112. Remember always, no matter what, there is in the end nothing but grace. Our choir will sing as we close our broadcast. The song is The Lamb by Gerald Coleman, arranged by Mark Hayes.